following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who live in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and your vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance, and so you will inherit a double portion in the land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Thanks, Helen, for the reading of the word. And it's good that we can be together and open up God's word uh, today and look back into the uh, passage in Isaiah. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. So we're continuing our series in the book of Isaiah, and it seems to be that it's gone on for a, a little bit of time as we've dug into the depths of this passage and try to understand what's going on there. If you're anything like me, I thought it was useful just to have a bit of a pause and a bit of a reminder about where we've been in this passage, uh, this book of Isaiah, and where we're at to at this particular point of time, because I think as we look at today's passage, it may be helpful to remember where we've come from and where God has taken us in this particular passage. Think about the big picture. Understand what's going on in this particular time. So remember, we're talking about Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. And really, a prophet was a messenger from God. The prophet was somebody that God sent to proclaim whatever his message was upon the people at that particular time. And Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century, and he was a significant prophet. In fact, his ministry was very long and very significant. He was very influential. He had a lot of power in the courts of the king at that particular time. In fact, Isaiah was a prophet through the period of um, four different kings. And tradition has it that King Uzziah 
which was the king that died when he began his prophetic ministry, was actually uh, a relative of his as well. So basically, Isaiah was a significant prophet at this particular time, involved in the politics of the day, involved in all that was going on. And really, from when King Uzziah died, you might remember that way back in Isaiah chapter 6, that happened about 740 BC, right through to this time, he was faithful, and he ministered for a period of about 60 years. So he was there for a long, long time. I just think about in the context of what we are remembering uh, today around um, the, the death of, um, of, of um, Prince Philip and how long that he was involved in his uh, work there. And he was involved for a little bit longer, but Isaiah was actually a prophet for, for very much a similar length of time. And the reality was that the prophet was one of the tools that God uses to be able to call people back to himself. And whenever God's people were disobedient, prophets were the one that went with a message to be able to proclaim what they should be doing and what was going on. And what I think would be quite useful to do is to remind us about what God did require of his people. What was God expecting of his people and why was he sending this prophet Isaiah? And I just want to read a few verses way, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what it says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, remember the nation of Israel had been in Egypt and that he was carrying them out of that captivity and that they were going to enter the promised land. And as they were entering the promised land, there are a number of instructions that were given as they go and take the land. And this is one of these instructions. So as you go and possess the land and drive out the nations that are there, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your sons or daughters uh, to them, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn upon you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do then. Break down the altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you are more numerous than other people, for you are the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loves you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out by the mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations, to those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. You see, what happened right back when the nation of Israel was in its, in its formation, God gave them specific instructions. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to follow me. I want you to worship me and follow my instructions. If you do that, then things will go well with you. If you don't do that, then unfortunately, there's going to be punishment for your lack of obedience. And what we read about when we get to this book of Isaiah is accumulation of hundreds of years of disobedience. Hundreds of years where the people had basically turned their back upon God and been doing their own thing. And all the way through, Isaiah's goal is come back to me, come back to me. And that's what he's trying to do here. The reality is that when Israel obeyed God, things went well. When they disobeyed God, things went poorly. 
And God uses the prophets time and time again to call people back to himself, call people back to himself. And that's what's going on in this particular passage we're looking at today. So as I said, Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century. And this was really when Israel was at the height of its disobedience. They had disobeyed God for many, many years. Things were not going well for the nation of Israel. And in fact, in Isaiah's time, he would have been able to witness the fact that the nation had been split into two, the nation of Israel to the north, Judah to the south, and he would have actually seen the fact that the, the northern kingdom was being carried off into captivity by the Assyrian people. Isaiah witnessed these things. He knew what was going on. And the southern kingdom, this was in Judah, which is where he was ministering to, had, a, in effect, a final chance to turn around and to turn back to God. God had promised since the time of Moses, if you obey me, I will bless you. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to bless the people. He wanted them to be followers of him. He wanted them to turn back to him. And so throughout the life of Isaiah, he brings these prophecies. The first part of uh, Isaiah is more looking at judgment and destruction. But the second part we're looking at now is more around that whole idea of, of hope, salvation that is going to come to the people. And that's what he's really focusing upon here. You see, one day the Messiah will come. One day good news will come. And so really the message we're looking at today in Isaiah is the fact there's hope. There is hope. Good news is here. There is hope. Things have been bad, but things can get better. This is your chance to respond to God. This is your chance to turn around. Come back to me and things will be better. So looking at this message, let's see what happens. So firstly, um, we see the fact that God is proclaiming the good news. So God is proclaiming the good news. And, and um, just that first verse here, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He will send me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. So he, as in God, is wanting people to come back to him. He's given them another opportunity. He's given them lots of opportunities, but he's saying once again, here's the good news. He is, he's anointed, the prophet's anointed by God, and this anointing was normally something that was specific for kings, and that when a new king was put upon the throne in Israel, they were anointed and put aside for a special task. But in this situation, we have again the fact that this prophet is anointed, has a special task from God, and that his role is to say the Messiah is coming. This prophet is commissioned by God. He's got the power of God's spirit within him. And this anointed prophet is there to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The spirit of God and the anointing of God upon the prophet, and this enables him to proclaim the message, the good news. And notice who the message goes to. It goes to the poor. It goes to those of the broken and downhearted. It goes to all those that are suffering and in despair. And in this situation in the nation of Israel, they could relate to that well. They knew that the enemy was close by. They knew that it was not long until that they would potentially be carried off into captivity to another nation. They were experiencing some of this despair, some of this uh, difficulty that was being talked about here. And so basically what happens here is the prophet has been anointed by the Spirit of God to preach good news. Good news is there to be proclaimed. And notice it talks about the fact that it, he, they want to sacrifice beauty instead of ashes, want to give gladness instead of mourning, 
wants to give praise instead of despair. So though there was despair at this particular time, hope was there. Hope was there. God was coming with his favour. Good news is available to all, including those that were poor. We see the fact that those that are discouraged, they will be lifted up. The captives will be set free. And remember, in this particular era, there were literally, the nation to the north was in captivity. This wasn't a hypothetical situation. Isaiah would have been able to say, look at the nation of Israel to the north. See the fact that they're in Assyrian captivity? One day they can be freed. If people turn back to me, they will be freed. God's favour is coming. And like in the year of Jubilee, which is this was referring to, when all debts were paid and when people returned to their land, this is what is being referred to here. So that what the prophet is trying to do here is say there is hope. Things are bad, but things will be better. But in order for them to get better, turn back to God. Turn back to God. And that was always the prophet's message. So secondly, we see that God is providing deliverance. It says, they will rebuild the ruined, the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Instead of shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you'll receive an inheritance. You'll inherit a double portion in your land. So the reality is that deliverance and transformation were being offered to the people. Even though things were difficult and things were bad, there was that hope things were going to get better. Deliverance and transformation were being offered to the nation. That language of rebuilding. Things were going to get rebuilt. Things were going to be better. And even though it did actually take some time for that to happen, these things did actually come to pass. But at that time, the promise was given. If you turn back to God, things will be rebuilt. The nations will make it possible for the people of Israel to rebuild their ancient calling to bear royal priesthood, and to serve God once again. They will move from that place of shame to enjoying that inheritance. They will get that double blessing that the firstborn was eligible to receive. So the prophet is saying that if you turn back to God, that position of shame and despair that you're currently experiencing will be transformed, and that you will experience newness of life and joy and righteousness. Although the, late, the nation was at its lowest point probably ever, there was still hope. God never abandoned them. He always gave them hope. God's deliverance was offered to them. If they turned back to God, he would deliver them. He would restore them, and he would bless them again. So God, in this passage here, is providing deliverance. He's providing that sense of hope to the people. But as we continue, we see, thirdly, is the fact that God is providing transformation to live righteous lives. Starting at verse 8, it says, um, and then even in verse 10, I greatly delight in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns the head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So in this final section of this prophecy, we see that the people of God have something to look forward to. And he uses a couple of different illustrations uh, that are talked about there. One of those is a wedding illustration, the fact of people being dressed up for a wedding and being adorned as they would be for a wedding feast. 
And then the other picture that's talked about in this passage is, is new life. I think about uh, some of the photos I saw of the, the bushfires in Australia and the total devastation that was there and that everything was black because of the fires that were there. But you look, it didn't take long before those little new shoots started to spring up out of that, that wasteland, out of that devastation. And it's exactly that same picture that has been talked about here, is that even though there has been wasteland and there has been trouble, those new shoots are coming up. Because of who God is, he is the God who loves justice. He loves justice and he hates robbery and, and, and he wants his people to be able to enjoy the blessing of God. One of the effects of the everlasting covenant is that he will restore that relationship with his people. God will give his people the righteous behavior that they want, that they've been unable to produce for themselves, and that things will be transformed. So we see the fact that the prophet is offering hope. He's offering transformation. He's offering people to be restored to himself and the transformation that will take place. So this is the prophecy that was given to that particular um, by that prophet at that particular time. But as I, th- as I was thinking about this and as I was trying to understand where it worked, I really felt that this message really had three different parts to it, three different ways that it could be, um, it could be seen and things that could be going on there. So firstly, when this prophecy was given, it was given firstly by the prophet to the nation of Israel. And there was a genuine opportunity for the people of Israel to turn back to God. It wasn't just a... a an appeal that nothing was going to happen, he wanted them to turn back to God at that particular time. So around the time of Isaiah, you know, 700 BC, God wanted them to turn at that particular time back to him. That was what God was calling them to do. He specifically says, come back to me, obey me, follow me, and I will turn the nation around. I will bless you. But what happened? What happened to the people? They continued in their sin. They continued to follow their own way. And if we were to fast forward about 100 years, the nation of Judah was carried off by the Babylonians into captivity, and they experienced 70-plus years in captivity under the rulership of a foreign nation. Why? Because they had chosen not to obey God, and they had chosen not to to follow the warnings that the prophet Isaiah had given to them. But secondly, there's another era that is being talked about here, and it's the era of the time of the Jews in Jesus' day. This prophecy was a significant one in Jesus' day as well. If you've got your Bibles, Luke chapter 4 specifically talks about this passage here. If you think about the events of Jesus' ministry, he was commencing his ministry and he went out and he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness and uh, experienced the temptations that were there. And then he came back and he began his public ministry. And Luke 4 is talked about in this particular context here. So starting at verse 14, it says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came from Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was the custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unscrolled the scroll 
and found the place where it was written. And he reads from this passage that we're talking about today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set a liberty for those that are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so what did the nation of Israel do? Of course, they all bowed down and said, you are the Messiah and repented from their sins and followed him, didn't they? No, they didn't. You'd think they would have. You'd think they hadn't responded the first time under Isaiah. You'd think they would have under the Messiah, but no, they didn't. This is what they did in verse 28. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow up the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That is how they responded to the Messiah. At that particular time, when Jesus says, I am here to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah given some 700 years before, today you have seen this prophecy fulfilled, and he read the scripture. Rather than responding to him, they took him up to the hill and were about to throw him off the cliff. That's how they treat the Messiah. And as we know, and we've just celebrated as we think about Easter, we have remembered the fact that ultimately the way they responded to the Messiah was not to bow down and worship him and repent of their sins, but it was to put their Messiah, our Messiah, upon a cross because they didn't like what he had to say. So the message that Jesus gave was exactly the same as it had been given 750 years ago. But they disobeyed God, they continued in their evil ways, and they chose to do their own thing. Nothing changes. The response was exactly the same to Jesus the Messiah as it was to the prophet Isaiah. They didn't want to do anything about it. But I also think about us today and how we respond today. Now, if you think about the relevance of the prophecy to us today, the good news is proclaimed to us today just as it was in Jesus' time, just as it was in the prophet Isaiah's time. The good news is there as well. God wants us to be in a relationship with him, just like he did for the nation of Israel in times gone by. He wants us to be in a relationship with him. And we have the choice about how we will respond to that message as well. You know, the reality is, as individuals, like the nation of Israel, we have disobeyed God. We've ignored God. We've gone our own way. However, for us, there's still time. There is still time to turn from our evil ways. So the message is the same for us as it was in Isaiah's time and Jesus' time. A simple message. Turn to God. Or as it talks about often in the scripture, that, that idea of repenting, turning around, going in a position of being away from God and turning back to being a follower of God. God will transform you. And through you, the nations will hear about God and will be transformed by that. 
Lots of passages in Scripture talk about what is going on and the fact that we need to be able to turn back to God. The reality is that God enables us to live righteous lives and to be a blessing to others. God's good news has been shared with us. God's salvation is available to all of us. God's Spirit indwells us as followers of Christ. God's transformation is given to us. God's justice and mercy comes to everyone. And as I was thinking about how this passage applies to us uh, today and the significance of it, um, something popped up on my social media. I'm not sure if you can see it up here. It might be a bit dark. Um, this, is, this is a post from uh, a friend of mine who is in Pakistan. And he quoted the exact passage from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, in this post that he put up a couple of days ago. And he is involved in doing exactly what this passage is talking about along with his wife. In Pakistan, they are working in a brick kiln village. So perhaps if we put up the next slide, we can see some of that. They're working in a brick kiln village. And these are spread across Pakistan. The reality is that all the bricks in Pakistan are made in these small brick kiln villages. They're handmade bricks, literally handmade. You go out and you, you dig the mud and find the sand and you, you make them by hand. We've seen them do it. They say that across Pakistan there's probably about 20,000 of these brick kiln villages employing about 4.5 million people. These people are aged from basically children as soon as they can walk right through to people as elderly as they are still able to walk to the, the, um, the factory to be able to make these bricks. I use the term employed lightly because the reality is that these people are modern-day slaves. These are, are what are called bonded labourers. The reality is, is that they work to pay back a loan. The reality is the way the loan is structured, they will never be able to pay back the loan. So the harder they work, the more in debt that they become. Because, for instance, at certain times of the year, because of uh, wet seasons or because they can't fire the brick kiln, that they cannot actually work and produce bricks. So therefore, the owner of the brick kiln village pays them for that time. So they become indebted, and they become indebted. So they work very hard, but the debt becomes greater and greater and greater. And so these people are slaves. They get tricked, they get trapped, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And families, generation after generation, become enslaved in some of these situations. They're permanently indebted to the owners of these uh, kilns, and they and their family work uh, all day to be able to try and recover some of that debt. There's nothing they can do. And the conditions they work in are... None of you would work in these conditions. None of you would work or live in these conditions. Like the houses they live in, even by Pakistan standards, are low-caliber housing. These are some of the uh, pictures up here. Um, so you can see up the top uh, right there, a girl standing in front of some bricks there. Um, down the bottom uh, on the right there is the school. And one of the things that uh, this couple that we minister with over there, one of the new projects they've started is a school. And one of the reasons that they want to do this school is to transform these poor people through the good news of Jesus Christ and give them a hope. And so therefore that little uh, school 
Notice the school's different from our school. Uh, no roof. Uh, very simple facilities as far as that's concerned. One of the projects that we have been helping them with at the top left, and you probably can't even see it, but in the top left you won't even notice it there, but they've been building a toilet. Because the reality is these kids are now been going to school, that's a real plus, but in the school there is no toilet. So therefore these kids have had to either wait all day so they could go to the toilet at the end of the day, or if they were desperate they would have to run out into the fields to be able to do those sorts of things. So I realise some of you think that uh, our schools in New Zealand are not ideal, but they all have a roof over the class and they all have a toilet that the students can use. But the reality is, this is the lives of some of these poor people. And this is the transformation that the gospel is causing in this particular village and uh, we've been involved in supporting them and helping them to be able to transform. Some of the photos that we first received when they started this work, I could not show in this church. Pictures of malnutrition, kids completely covered in scabies. You know, the, the photos were horrific in terms of what was going on. But the, this couple has been in there and that they have been able to bring transformation. And little by little, they have been able to provide some sense of health for these uh, children. They've been able to provide some books and some education. They've been able to provide the simple things like clean water and sanitation. And the reality is, this example in Pakistan is transformation because of the good news of the gospel. That's why these people are there doing it. That's what's happening, is that they're choosing to do this because the gospel has transformed their lives and they want to transform the lives of others. Can you bring up the next slide, please? Here's another example of another partner that we work with there. And again, it's difficult to see, but on the right-hand side there, uh, they've got a, a scholarship for students over there. So many of the students cannot afford to go to school, cannot afford to go to university, because their families are so poor, and of course you don't get any government assistance over there to, to receive education, that they give them scholarships to be able to pay for their tuition and to be able to go to school. They give them food, and particularly during this last year with um, COVID and the challenges around that, that so many people they work with are day, uh, day labourers, so you work for the day, you get paid for the day, you don't work for the day, you don't get paid, so therefore you don't get paid, you don't eat. And so therefore they're able to be able to provide food and sustenance for those people. And as well as that, they're able to see people come to Christ and the transformation that the gospel causes in that scenario. And then the last picture uh, is an example of, of another friend, another pa Pakistan, uh, involved in church planting. So he goes about uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, they, they have established a school with about 200 students in it. And then they also go out and provide um, sewing classes to some of the women. And the reason they provide sewing classes is so that the women can actually develop some skills that finances can be given and that they can actually make a living for themselves. So when the woman graduate from the sewing course, they also get given a sewing machine. And so therefore that is a way that they can move from being entrapped in slavery and indebtedness to be able to develop a better life. And the reality is all of these things take place through the power of the gospel. And to me, as I was thinking about this, this is Isaiah 61 in 21st century world that we live in. 
the good news is being proclaimed. Lives are being transformed. And because lives are being transformed, they are being a blessing to those around them. They have compassion for those that are not as well off as they are. They want to go out and to help people, provide education, provide sanitation, provide medication, help them to be able to live transformed lives. This is exactly what has been talked about here. And the reality is for each one of us here today that we have the opportunity to live transformed lives as well. Remember that each one of you today is a special creation of God. Each one of you is in a special relationship with God. You are created in the image of God. You are deeply loved by God. And God calls us, as he did in Isaiah's time, as he did in Jesus' time, to turn to God. And for some of you, you have already turned to God previously. But for some of you, it may be turning to God for the first time. But that's what he's calling us to do, as he has done in generations past. Turn to God. We all need to turn to God. We all need to be following God. And when we turn to God, we are to be living lives that are going to honour and glorify God. That we are to be transforming our community, seeing things change in our community because God has changed us. These partners that I've shared with you about in Pakistan, the reason they do that is because they love God and they know how much God has loved them and therefore they want to go out and to be able to do these things. So God enables us to live righteous lives and to be a blessing to others because he loves us and because he has transformed our lives. Let's bow and pray together. Heavenly Father, we are just so grateful for what you have done for us. We thank you for the message of Isaiah the prophet that so many years ago he proclaimed good news. He gave us hope. And today we are able to enjoy that same hope, that same spirit, that same blessing that was offered some 3,000 years ago to the nation of Israel. Father, I just want to pray for each one of us today that have been transformed by the power of the gospel, that that would affect the way that we live our lives, that those that we interact with, that they would be able to be blessed because we have been blessed by you, Lord. Help us to live lives that honour you and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.